Hello, and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Julia. Hi, Lauren. Uh, how are things? How are you? Doing great. Things are great. What? Is that? Is that a... Is that a horse approaching us right now? What, what am I... Got, I, li- I got a soundboard. <laughs> it's very exciting. You mean your cell phone propped up against the microphone? Oh. <laughs> it's very fun. Wow. Yes, my sound... My- <laughs> your, your huge yep. soundboard in front of you? Uh-huh. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, uh... <laughs> I was wondering what you were doing. Yeah. <laughs> Just playing with my phone. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, hi. Hi. What's uh, what's with the sound effects? Well, here's the thing. Okay. Our topic today. Please. It's very relevant. Uh, we briefly touched upon this in a quiz in okay. um, episode 66, The Graveyard Shift. Uh, the quiz was called What Do You Want on Your Tombstone? It was a quiz yes. about pizza in the Wild West. I'm sure I did very um, poorly. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. But I, I thought that this particular topic deserved kind of a deeper dive because for some freaking reason, it's been showing up in pub trivia for me or like learning league or just really? trivia in general. Okay. I probably, I would say five times in the last like two months. Oh my gosh. Which is a significant. That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So today we're talking about the gunfight at the OK Corral. So we have to incorporate that into our personal lives somehow. Yeah. The yee-hoo. Just walk around. <laughs> yee-hoo. Yee-hoo. So the gunfight at the OK Corral happened on Wednesday, October 26th, 1881 at 3 o'clock p.m. Mm, yep. That's a time. Yep. In Tombstone, <laughs> Arizona territory. And it's generally regarded as the most famous shootout in the history of the American Wild West. Oh, my gosh. You've heard about it. Yeah, the definitely. gunfight at the OK Corral. So anyway, a little background. Sure. Tombstone, Arizona. What's that? What the heck is it? Mm-hmm. So it was nicknamed the town too tough to die. Ooh. So it was founded in 1879 by prospector Ed Shefflin in what was then Pima County, Arizona Territory. So Arizona Territory existed from about 1863 to 1912 before it was admitted to the Union. So there had been a scouting voyage in the area against the Chiriquaha Apaches. Okay. Okay. So Ed Shefflin was part of this mission and he was staying at a place called Camp Wachuca. And during his stay, he would leave the camp to go out in the woods and the wilderness and look for rocks, okay. anything valuable out there. And, sure. um, you know, and even though the fellow soldiers in his camp told him not to, Ooh. the soldiers told him he wouldn't find anything valuable out in the wilderness, only eventually his own tombstone. <gasps> bum, bum, bum. That's good. That's not even from yeah. the soundboard. Well, y'all. you know, it's my own personal soundboard. My mouth. So old Ed did find something, though. What did he find? He Was it his own tombstone? Silver. Ooh. So taking the advice his fellow soldiers had given him previously, tongue in cheek, he named that very first mine the tombstone. Okay. That okay. makes sense. Mm-hmm. So word spread quickly about his silver strike. And it wasn't long before cowboys and homesteaders and prospectors and all kinds of folks, lawyers, business people, and gunmen headed to the area. So back then, that area was known as Goose Glatz. Um, and it was a town site situated near the mines in 1879, but was renamed Tombstone after Ed's mine. I see. 
Tombstone was ultimately one of the last boom towns in the American frontier. It grew significantly in the mid 1880s as the local mines produced between 40 and 85 million dollars oh in God. silver bullion. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. So this was like the biggest silver load in Arizona territory. Too. Yeah. So um, Tombstone's population grew from about 100 people living in tents to about 14,000 people oh in actual houses in less than seven years. Wow. So by 1881, there were fancy restaurants, a bowling alley, four what? churches, a school, an ice house, an opera house, two banks, three newspapers, and an ice cream parlor, along with... 110 saloons, 14 gambling halls, and innumerable brothels. Oh, innumerable. Innumerable. Oh, no. (laughs) So this was there in um, Cochise County. It was um, created on February 1st, 1881 out of the eastern portion of Pima County. And it took its name from the legendary Chiricahua Apache war chief Cochise. So Cochise County ultimately became well known for the dozens of shootings and public gunfights that okay. old, between Old West lawmen and outlaws that occurred within its boundaries. So we're in 1881. Okay. On the evening of March 15th, 1881, three Cochise County cowboys, this is the name of their gang, mm-hmm. attempted to rob a Kinnear and Company stagecoach carrying $26,000 in silver bullion, which today is worth about $689,000. Oh, wow. So they were en route from Tombstone to Benson, Arizona. That was the nearest uh, railroad freight terminal. Near Drew's Station, the popular and well-known stagecoach driver, Eli Bud Philpot, and a passenger named Peter Rarig, who was riding in the rear seat, they were both shot and killed by the Cowboys. Oh, wow. Deputy U.S. Marshal Virgil Earp and his temporary deputies and brothers pursued the Cowboys suspected of these murders. And this set off what would become a personal, family, and political feud. Oh. So who are the dudes involved in this? Please tell me all of it. The Cochise County Cowboys. At this time in U.S. history, cowboy was actually synonymous with rustler. So legitimate cowmen were instead referred to as cattle herders or ranchers. Oh, so cowboy is actually a pejorative. At this point in time, yeah. Yeah. So cattle thieves frequently rode across the border into Mexico and stole cattle from Mexican ranches, which they then drove back across the border and sold in the United States. So some modern writers actually consider them to be one of the first and earliest form of organized crime syndicates in American history. That's interesting. I never really thought about it that way. But yeah. Yeah. So these guys here in Cochise County. Yeah. Billy Claiborne. Okay. He was born William Floyd Claiborne in 1860 in Yazoo County, Mississippi. Yazoo. He worked as a cowhand and he helped drive cattle from Texas to Arizona Territory in 1879. And he became friends with the Clantons, who we'll talk about shortly. In 1881, after William Billy the Kid Bonnie was killed, Billy Claiborne demanded that others call him Billy the Kid. Uh, Okay. He reportedly killed between one and three men who refused to call him that. Jeez. Claiborne was a heavy drinker and a hothead. Yeah. On October 1st, 1881, Claiborne got into an argument with James Hickey in the Queen's Saloon, where Hickey had been drinking for three straight days. Um, He then shot Hickey in the face, killing him instantly. So, Billy Claiborne, not afraid of a gun. See, this is why all those ladies wanted temperance so badly. You know? (laughs) This is why, you know, (laughs) you have a point. (laughs) Yeah. Like, this is unstable behavior yes brought on by it's, it's the wild west exactly if you will. the devil's drink if you will uh next we have ike clinton 
So he was born Joseph Isaac Clanton in 1847 in Missouri, who was one of seven children of Newman Clanton and Mariah Sexton. So the Clantons moved a lot. Uh, Their father worked as a day laborer, a farmer, a gold miner, and by the late 1870s, a cattleman. The Clanton men worked a ranch near Tombstone, but they stole livestock from Mexico and later U.S. ranchers. By most accounts, Ike was not well liked in and around the Tombstone area because he was a drunk and a braggart. Mm. Um, Ike's father's ranch near the Mexican border served as a way station for a lot of the smuggling that was carried out by the outlaw cowboys. So Ike, a little dicey. He had a brother named Billy Clanton, who was born William Harrison Clanton in 1862 in Hamilton County, Texas. He was uh, kind, of, kind of contrary to his brother. He was generally well-liked and considered hardworking and level-headed, but he was part of this group that mm. went and stole a bunch of cows. And he also stole Wyatt Earp's horse oh, <laughs> shortly no. after he arrived in town in 1879. Mistake. So, I mean, that's like number one. Yeah, don't do that. Don't steal a new guy's horse. Yeah. That's rude. It's very rude. And, and bullying. And you know what? Wyatt Earp thought this was very rude. I he, would imagine so. He filed that away. A <laughs> <laughs> couple other guys. Tom McClory. Um, he was born in 1853 in Meredith, New York. Okay. Um, he'd studied pre-law since one of his older brothers had opened a law practice in Texas, but reconsidered, mm. moved to Arizona in 1878. Um, he owned a ranch outside of Tombstone with his brother, Frank, during the 1880s. Um, he repeatedly threatened the Earps because they interfered with their illegal activities. Sure. Tom stole six mules from Camp Rucker in 1880 that were later found at his ranch. Um, oh, and on September 8th, 1881, a passenger stagecoach headed for Bisbee was robbed by masked cowboys, mm. later identified as Pete Spence and Frank Stilwell, who were very close friends of the McLaurys. Also, Tom McLaury was only about five foot three inches tall oh boy that's how people like to talk about him (laughs) and then finally frank mcclory he was born in 1849 in courtright new york um he also studied pre-law in texas joined a cattle drive and moved to arizona in 1878 became fast friends with ike clinton of the clinton ranch Mm. so the mcclory brothers were suspected of stealing cattle from sonora mexico and then selling them to old ben clinton and the local butchers so okay so these are a bunch of troublemakers bunch of troublemakers (laughs) And then we have who I guess we consider the law. Okay, in the this. law. Okay? Mm-hmm. So Virgil Earp. Um, he was born 1843 in Kentucky. He joined the 83rd Illinois Infantry during the Civil War. And in the summer of 1863, while he was on active duty, his father-in-law told his wife Ellen that Virgil had been killed in the war. What? Um, and so Ellen married another guy and no. moved to Oregon Territory. <laughs> what? And when Virgil returned from the war, he couldn't find his wife and daughter. Oh, no. <laughs> It's a very sad, like, early story about Virgil. Also, what a dick. <laughs> Why did I say that? Yep. Yeah, you died. You I died. got this letter right here. No, you can't read it. <laughs> you're just a woman. Yeah, you're just a woman. <laughs> Don't want to get you have you get the vapors. Go to Oregon. <laughs> so Virgil had, like, lost his wife and daughter. Jeez. They disappeared to Oregon. Um, so he worked a variety of jobs. Um, he was a peace officer he was a farmer a stagecoach driver later a prospector and then several other jobs too Uh, he spent time in dodge city kansas in 1877 before moving with his new common law wife Allie, to prescott which was the capital of the arizona territory he worked in prescott as a night watchman and a constable before being appointed as a deputy u.s marshal for the tombstone district of pima county in 1879 and he was later appointed town marshal for tombstone when the previous marshal fred white was accidentally shot and killed oh so Virgil Earp, town marshal. Town marshal. Deputy U.S. marshal. Yeah. He's in charge. Okay. All right. He's got a couple brothers. Morgan Earp. 
who was born in 1851 in Iowa. He ended up tending the family farm while his three older brothers, including Virgil, were off fighting during the Civil War. Uh, Morgan worked as a deputy marshal in Dodge City, Kansas in the 1870s. Then he moved to Montana. And after his brothers moved to Tombstone, Morgan was like, I'm going to move to Tombstone too. But he had a wife who was like very fragile. Louisa, she was like, she um, she had some health problems. So his plan was... He was going to leave Montana, drop her off in California, and then he was going to go ahead and meet his brothers in Tombstone. Okay. Morgan worked as a messenger for Wells Fargo. Um, He was a deputy sheriff for Pima County, and he was a deputy under his older brother, Virgil. Okay. And then the one probably that everybody has heard of the most is Wyatt Earp. Yeah. Okay. So he's born in 1848 in Illinois. Wyatt's occupations included buffalo hunter, saloon Mm. keeper, miner, boxing referee, brothel keeper, gambler, and later a lawman. Hmm. Uh, he was arrested a few times in his life. Um, his wife owned a brothel in Kansas, um, but he was appointed to the police force there in Wichita. But then he got fired after getting into a fist fight with one of his boss's opponents. Um, he moved to Dodge City, Kansas, where he became an assistant city marshal. And in the winter of 1878, tracked down an outlaw to Texas, where he met his good old pal Doc Holliday for the first Doc time. Doc Holliday, yes. Yes. Uh, Wyatt moved with his common-law wife, Maddie, to Tombstone with his brothers. And he similarly worked there as a messenger for Wells Fargo's and a deputy sheriff. So him and Morgan are kind of like doing the same stuff. And then their older brother, Virgil, is like in charge. Okay. So Wyatt is... The personality. I'm getting the yeah, sense. Yeah, that's a great way to describe it. He's, I really think it's funny, too, that all these guys have common-law wives. Like, they're like, I can't be bothered. <laughs> <laughs> We've been living together long enough. Yeah. Mm, eh. Wife. Done. And then, finally, the last the last law guy on this okay. one is Doc Holliday. Yes. So he's born John Henry Holiday in 1851 in Griffin, Georgia. He earned a degree in dentistry from the Pennsylvania College of Dental Surgery in Philadelphia, and he set up a practice in Atlanta, but was diagnosed with everybody's favorite disease, tuberculosis. Syphilis. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, hoping the climate in the American Southwest would ease his symptoms, Doc Holliday moved to Texas to practice dentistry. And over the next few years, he reportedly had several confrontations. Um, he developed a reputation as having killed more than a dozen men in various what? altercations. But modern researchers say that it's probably somewhere between like one and three. But he had like a like a like a reputation. So so he's just an angry dentist. He's an angry dentist. I thought that Doc Holliday was like a legit doctor. No, but he was a dentist Toot doctor, Jeez. if you will. So uh, when he first met uh, Wyatt in Texas, when when Wyatt was like pursuing a you know, an outlaw down to Texas. Doc Holliday actually saved Wyatt Earp's life. And so they became mm. like lifelong besties. Um, in 1879, Doc Holliday joined Wyatt in Las Vegas, New Mexico, and then rode with him to Prescott, Arizona. And then they went to Tombstone. So in Tombstone, local members of the outlaw Cow- Cochise County Cowboys repeatedly threatened him and spread rumors that he had robbed a stagecoach. Oh. Um, and then... His common law's wife was known. His common law wife was known as Big Nose Kate Haroni. Oh no! Like Poor they called Kate. her Big Nose Kate. Aw, that's not Kate's fault. <laughs> she's got a big nose. And if you go to um, to Tombstone, like nowadays, as like kind of a tourist attraction, they have a bit a Big Nose Kate saloon. It's like oh. a big thing there. She, I guess, she didn't mind. I, I mean, don't know. apparently, yeah. maybe she wasn't allowed to mind, Julia. Ugh. Well, here we go. The main event. Okay. 
On the morning of October 25th, 1881, Ike Clanton and Tom McClory came into Tombstone for supplies from the ranch out of town. Sure. Over the next 24 hours, the two men had several violent run-ins with the Earps and their friend Doc Holliday. Around 1.30 p.m. on October 26th, Ike's brother Billy rode into town to join them, along with Frank McLaurie and Billy Claiborne. The first person they met in the local saloon was Doc Holliday, who was delighted to inform him that their brothers had both been pistol-whipped by the Earps. <laughs> Frank and Billy immediately left the saloon, vowing revenge. At 3 o'clock p.m., the Earps and Doc Holliday spotted the five members of the Clayton McLaurie gang in a vacant lot behind the OK Corral at the end of Fremont Street. This next 30 seconds that ensued is the most famous gunfight I, in all of the U.S. I cannot believe it was only 30 seconds long. Yes. <laughs> so um, online, I went to the Arizona Memory Project that um, is a big uh, online digital collections database mm-hmm. based out of Arizona and uh, found a copy of the Arizona Weekly Citizen newspaper. Dated wow. October 30th, 1881. So it was posted on the Arizona Memory Project. Um, and this reprinted the October 27th story from the Tombstone Nugget for everyone in Arizona to read. And I transcribed this whole article from the newspaper all by myself. Look at you. Primary source is a great Primary archivist. Sources. And it's in the public domain now, so it's mm-hmm. okay if I read from it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're not getting sued by anybody. No. Headline. Marshall Virgil Earp, Morgan and Wyatt Earp, and Doc Holliday meet the Cowboys. Three men killed and two wounded, one seriously. Origin of trouble and its tragical termination. <gasps> are you? Are you? I'm hooked. You're in? Yeah. So the 26th of October will always be marked as one of the crimson days in the annals of Tombstone, a day when blood flowed as water and human life was held as a shuttlecock, <gasps> a day always to be remembered as witnessing the bloodiest and deadliest street fight that has ever occurred in this place or probably ever in the territory. Wow. The origin of the trouble dates back to the first arrest of Stilwell and Spencer for the robbery of the Bisbee stage. The cooperation of the Earps with the sheriff and his deputies in the arrest, causing a number of the cowboys to, it is said, threaten the lives of all interested in the capture. Still, nothing occurred to indicate that any such threats would be carried into execution. But Tuesday night, Ike Clinton and Doc Holliday had some difficulty in the Alhambra saloon. Hard words passed between them, and when they parted, it was generally understood that the feeling between the two men was that of intense hatred. (gasps) Yesterday morning, Clinton came onto the street armed with a rifle and revolver, but was almost immediately arrested by Marshall Earp, disarmed and fined by Justice Wallace for carrying concealed weapons. Mm. And while in the courtroom, Wyatt Earp had told him that he had made threats against his life. He wanted to make his fight to say how, when, and where he would fight and to get his crowd and why it would be on hand. In reply, Clanton said, four feet of ground is enough for me to fight on and I'll be there. A short time after this, William Clinton and Frank McClory came in town, and as Thomas McClory was already here, the feeling soon became generally known that a fight would ensue before the day was over, and crowds of expectant men stood on the corner of Allen and 4th Streets awaiting the coming conflict. It was now about 2 o'clock, and at this time, Sheriff Behan appeared on the scene and told Marshall Earp that if he disarmed his posse, composed of Morgan and Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday, he would go down to the OK Corral, where Ike and James Clinton and Frank and Tom McClory were and disarm them. The marshal did not desire to do this until assured there was no danger of an attack from the other party. Mm. The sheriff went to the crowd and told the cowboys that they must put their arms away and not have any trouble. Ike Clanton and Tom McClory said they were not armed, and Frank McClory (gasps) said he would not lay his aside. 
In the meantime, the marshal had concluded to go and, if possible, end the matter by disarming them. And as he and his posse came down Fremont Street toward the corral, the sheriff stepped out and said, Hold up, boys. Don't go down there or there will be trouble. I have been down there to disarm them. But they passed on, and within a few feet of them, the marshal said to the Clans and McLaurys, Throw up your hands, boys. I intend to disarm you. Isn't this, this is so like, <laughs> you, I'm you. disarming you. <laughs> All right. As he spoke, Frank McClory mm. made a motion to draw his revolver. When Wyatt Earp pulled his and shot him, the ball striking on the right side of his abdomen. About the same time, Doc Holliday shot Tom McClory in the right side using a short shotgun, such as is carried by Wells Fargo and company's messengers. In the meantime... <laughs> Sponsored by Wells Fargo. <laughs> Yeah, they were big. Yeah. In the meantime, Billy Clayton had shot at Morgan Earp, the ball passing through the point of the left shoulder blade across his back, just grazing the backbone and coming out at the shoulder, the ball remaining inside of his shirt. He fell to the ground, but in an instant gathered himself and raising in a sitting position, fired at Frank McClory as he crossed Fremont Street. And at the same instant, Doc Holliday shot at him, both balls taking effect, either of which would have proved fatal as one struck him in the right temple and the other in the left breast. As he started across the street, however, he pulled his gun down on holiday saying i've got you now blaze away you're a daisy if you have replied doc <laughs> this shot of mcclory's passed through holiday's <laughs> pistol pocket just grazing his skin wow while this was going on billy clinton had shot virgil Earp in the right leg the ball passing through the calf inflicting a severe flesh wound in turn he had been shot by morgan Earp in the right side of the abdomen and twice by virgil Earp, once in the right wrist and once in the left breast and soon after the shooting commenced, Ike Clinton ran through the OK Corral, across Allen Street into Kellogg Saloon, and thence into Toughnut Street, where he was arrested and taken to the county jail. The firing altogether didn't occupy more than 25 or 30 seconds, during which more than 30 shots were fired. After the fight was over, Billy Clinton, who, with wonderful vitality, survived his wounds for fully an hour, was carried by the editor and foreman of the Nugget into a house where he lay, and everything possible done to make his last moments easy. He was game to the last, never uttering a word of complaint, and just before breathing his last, he said, Goodbye, boys. Go away and let me die. The wounded were taken to their houses, and at three o'clock this morning were resting comfortably. The dead bodies were taken in charge by the coroner, and an inquest will be held upon them at 10 o'clock today. Upon the person of Thomas McLaurie was found between $300 and $400 in checks and certificates of deposit to the amount of nearly $3,000. Wow. During the shooting, Sheriff Bean was standing by, commanding the contestants to cease firing, but was powerless to prevent it. Several parties who were in the vicinity of the shooting had narrow escapes from being shot. At the morgue, the bodies of the three slain cowboys lay side by side, covered with a sheet. Very little blood appeared on their clothing, and only on the face of young Billy Clanton was there any distortion of the features or evidence of plain and dying. The features of the two McLaurie boys looked as calm and placid in death as if they had died peaceably, surrounded by loving fans and sorrowing relatives. No unkind remarks were made by anyone, but a feeling of unusual sorrow seemed to prevail at this sad occurrence. Of the McLaurie brothers, we could learn nothing of their previous history before coming to Arizona. The two brothers owned quite an extensive ranch in the lower San Pedro, some 70 or 80 miles from for this city to which they had removed their band of cattle since the re- recent Mexican and Indian troubles. They did not bear the reputation of being a quarrelsome disposition, but were known as fighting men and have generally <laughs> conducted themselves in a quiet and orderly manner when in tombstone. End of report. <laughs> <laughs> um, you got a little, you got some Arizona twang on you there towards the end. A little Western twang. my brother. No, you know what? 
it really I entered the story I felt it I could see it uh-huh. so no I think that's great so it was two of the McClary brothers two McClary brothers McClary brothers two Clantons and Billy Claiborne and Billy Claiborne mm-hmm. so basically all the cowboys died three of them died three of them died. yeah three of them died I Clanton kind of ran away from everybody hmm. yeah typical of Ike <laughs> so and the sheriff in this whole story was like a real like yeah he was like, put down your weapon. Real limp like, dick of a no. sheriff. And then when everybody started shooting, he was like, everybody stop it. <laughs> stop shooting. I told you I was here to disarm you. <laughs> if you had been disarmed, we wouldn't be here right now. <laughs> yeah. That's why this isn't, he's not known. Yeah. No in one story. His no, name. he doesn't know this guy. So, though it is still debated who fired, who actually fired the first shot. Sure. Most reports say that the shootout began when Virgil Earp pulled out his revolver and shot Billy Clinton point blank in the chest, <laughs> while Doc Holliday fired a gunshot blast at Tom McClory. Though Wyatt Earp wounded Frank McClory with a shot to the stomach, Frank managed to get off a few shots before collapsing, as did Billy Clinton. When the dust cleared, Billy Clinton and the McClory brothers were dead, and Virgil and Morgan Earp and Doc Holliday were wounded. But Ike Clinton and Billy Claiborne had run for the hills. Um, so despite its name the gunfight did not take place within or next to the OK Corral what (laughs) yeah so that fronted Allen Street and had a rear entrance lined with horse stalls on Fremont Street the shootout actually took place in a narrow vacant lot on the side of C.S. Fly's photographic studio on Fremont Street that was six doors west of the OK Corral's rear entrance so I think what happened was like the cowboys had like tied up their horses at the corral. Sure. And when the sheriff was like, they're all down at the corral, the herps were like, okay, here we go. And they kind of maybe met in the middle a little oh, bit. Oh, okay. But it wasn't at the corral. I see. Okay. But isn't that like a fun title? Yeah, it's not. I mean, it doesn't have the same ring if it was like six doors down from the OK Corral, kind of near Fremont Street next to that photographer's <laughs> place. You know, like that doesn't. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So. Again, Billy Clanton and both McClory brothers were killed. Um, Ike Clanton, Billy Claiborne, and another guy named Wes Fuller, who was friends with them but like didn't really do anything here, they ran away from the fight. Virgil, Morgan, and Doc Holliday were wounded, but Wyatt Earp was unharmed. Um, so right now, the graves of Billy Clanton and the McClory's are at Boot Hill Cemetery um, in Tombstone, mm-hmm. which was previously known as the Tombstone Cemetery. Wyatt Earp is often erroneously regarded as the central figure in the shootout, though his brother Virgil had much more experience as a sheriff, constable, marshal, and soldier in combat. So this event was not well known to the American public until 1931, uh, when Stuart Lake published the initially well-received biography, Wyatt Earp, Frontier Marshal, two years after Earp's death. The book was the basis for the 1946 film, My Darling Clementine, that was directed by John Ford, and the 1957 film, Gunfight at the OK Corral, Mm. after which the shootout became known by that name. I see. Since then, the conflict has been portrayed with varying degrees of accuracy in numerous Western films and books, and has become an archetype for much of the popular imagery associated with the Old West. But this was later proven to be largely fictionalized. The the biography yes. of Wyatt Earp. So Wyatt Earp, his name, you know it because sure. of this, because of this biography, because of all these tall tales that people were telling. Um, That's wild. Because a lot of things happen with the Earps too. So this particular gunfight, the one at the OK Corral in 1881, was not the end of the conflict between the Earps and the Cowboys. Um, on December 28th, 1881, Virgil Earp was ambushed and maimed in a murder attempt by the Cowboys. Mm. 
On March 18th, 1882, a cowboy fired from a dark alley through a glass door of the Campbell and Hatches Saloon and Billiard Parlor and killed Morgan Earp. Okay. So the suspects in both incidents furnished alibis that were supplied by other cowboys and they weren't indicted. But Wyatt Earp, he was out. He was out for blood. He's newly appointed as deputy U.S. Marshal in Cochise County. He took matters into his own hands and a personal vendetta. So he and a posse hunted down the cowboy Frank Stilwell as well as several other notorious cowboys during a two-week ride. So Wyatt, like a little bit like... Sure. Yeah, he's yeah. He's he kind of turns into like some vigilante justice. So yeah, he has some stories. Yeah. Sure. This sounds interesting. So the the biography about him was a little bit embellished. Okay. So that's crazy that this small like relatively small event because people seem to be like murdered all the time in the uh-huh. old west oh like people were being shot in the face yeah. for no reason you're people gonna are drunk. call me billy the kid yeah boom 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 yeah what did i say you're gonna call me billy the kid you know so the fact that this scuffle we'll call it didn't become famous for another 50 years because some guy decided that wyatt Earp was the star of every show yeah. is amazing to me yes that's wild. Isn't that interesting? So interesting. So a couple more things. Please. Um, a hand-drawn sketch of the gunfight was made by John Flood, who was friends with Wyatt Earp, um, with his assistants on September 15th, 1921. And this sketch was sold at auction in October 2010 for $380,000. What? This map describes the position of the number of witnesses and all of the participants of the gunfight, except for Ike Clanton, who ran away. So it's like a pencil-on-paper <laughs> sketch of like, here like, here's what it looked like and people ate this up so much this is wild yeah. what and uh the town of tombstone mm-hmm. has capitalized on interest in this gunfight yeah i would a too. portion of the town is a historical district that has been designated a national historic landmark and is listed in the national register of historic places by the u.s national park service and local company produces daily theatrical reenactments of the gunfight. oh that's yeah, so you can go sense. down there and you can go play Old West and you get your, you know, dress up and get your photo taken old timey and go to Big Nose Kate's saloon and then walk outside at 3 and p.m. and get to <laughs> see, see, see the whole thing. Get happen. to see the whole thing. Wow. What a thing. That's that's the gunfight at the OK Corral. <laughs> I probably should have played some more soundboard while I was telling the story, but I was no, so into okay. it. I was so into it. Yeah. I like the... Like the horses galloping too. Good. Even though there weren't any horses in this story. <laughs> no, it, it evokes the Wild West. I do like that guy. That's very good. Yeah, Wee Who is my fave. <laughs> that was great. I learned so much. Thank you, Julia. Great. So now it's time for the quiz. Okay. Quiz is called um actually Ooh. this is a quiz on common historical misconceptions. Ooh, I love this. Okay. Question one. So, as it turns out, there is no evidence that Vikings wore horned helmets. Apologies to Lizzo's new man. Rather, the image of Vikings wearing horns on their helmets comes from the German production of what famous 1876 opera cycle? Question two. Contrary to popular belief, immigrants' last names were not Americanized voluntarily, mistakenly, or otherwise upon arrival at Ellis Island. Officials there kept no records other than checking ship manifests created at the point of origin, and there was simply no paperwork that would have created such an effect. In what year did Ellis Island open as an immigration station in New York Harbor? It's the same year that the first issue of Vogue was published. 
Abercrombie and Fitch was founded, and Grover Cleveland was elected to his second term as president. Question three. What a confabulation. Founding father Benjamin Franklin never actually proposed that the wild turkey be used as the symbol for the United States over the bald eagle. Franklin did, however, serve on a commission to design the Great Seal of the United States, for which he proposed an icon of which biblical character from the Book of Exodus as an allegory for the colonial era? Question four. For the last time, no one was burned at the stake during the Salem witch trials in 1692. Can you name the enslaved Carib woman who was the first to be accused of witchcraft by Elizabeth Parris and her cousin, Abigail Williams? Question five. This multiple choice question is rated okay for emetophobes. Vomiting was not a regular part of Roman dining customs. Instead, the architectural feature called a vomitorium could actually be found where? A, in a public bathhouse, B, in a stadium, C, in a temple, or D, in a lighthouse? Question six. Yeah, so medieval Europeans did not actually believe Earth was flat. Looks like scholars have known the Earth is spherical since at least 500 BC. Which fantasy series is set on a flat planet balanced on the backs of four elephants, which in turn stand on the back of a giant turtle? Question seven. Not totally sure why William Seward got such a bad rap. It turns out that his big land purchase was generally popular in the United States, despite the later nickname Seward's Folly. What acquisition did he make from the Russian Empire? Question eight. Despite now being referenced commonly in culture and society at large, it's actually a single debunked work that proposed the idea that Victorian era doctors invented what to cure female hysteria. Question nine, just another urban legend. There was no widespread outbreak of panic across the United States in response to Orson Welles' 1938 radio adaptation of H.G. Wells's The War of the Worlds. In the story, aliens from what planet invade Earth? And finally, question 10. I hope your feelings haven't been hurt by this quiz. I'll name four popular weapons or devices from the Middle Ages, and you tell me if they were real or if they were actually fabricated during the 19th century. First, Iron Maiden. Second, Morning Star Flail. Third, Chastity Belt. And fourth, Thumbscrews. We'll give you about a minute to think, and then we'll be back with your answers. This is very good. I'm excited about it. I don't know how I'm good how good I'm going to do. This might be a struggle for both of us. Oh, but um, I will do my very best, and that is all I can promise. I believe you will. Thanks. I believe in you. Yep. 
Question one. So as it turns out, there's no evidence that Vikings wore horned helmets. Apologies to Lizzo's new man. Rather, the image of Vikings wearing horns on their helmets comes from the German production of what famous 1876 opera cycle? The only one I can think of, it's a Wagner cycle. Is it The Ring? Yes. Yes. Okay, yes. great. Yeah. Um, so Der Ring des Nibelungen, the Ring of the Nibelungen, also known as the Ring Cycle by Richard Wagner. It's a cycle of four German language epic music dramas written over the course of 26 years by Wagner. Oh my God. The components are Das Rheingold, is it the Rheingold, Die Volker, the Valkyrie, uh, Siegfried, and Gotterdammerung, which is um, in English, the Twilight of the Gods. I remember it from Merry Melodies. I remember, um, yeah, uh, Bugs Bunny did the Ring Cycle at some uh, at one point. Do, do kids watch Mary? Do kids watch Looney Tunes anymore? I don't know. I don't know anything about children. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, I, and this has come up before. Like, I learned a lot about like opera and classical music oh, from yeah. watching Looney Tunes when I was like six or seven. Yeah, very young. And it was old when we were watching it, yeah. so it doesn't. Su- it was on like reruns. Yeah, somewhere Saturday morning cartoons. Maybe sure. So someone's watching it. If you have a child, please. <laughs> who who watches Looney Tunes? Who watches Looney Tunes? Yeah. Tell us if your child watches Looney Tunes legitimately without you forcing them to. <laughs> or whatever. You know, it's... Uh, just tell us. Because <laughs> we're curious. Question two. Contrary to popular belief, immigrants' last names were not Americanized upon arrival at Ellis Island. Officials there kept no records other than checking ship manifests created at the point of origin, and there was simply no paperwork that would have created such an effect. In what year did Ellis Island open as an immigration station in New York Arbor? It's the same year that the first issue of Vogue was published, Abercrombie & Fitch was founded, and Grover Cleveland was elected to his second term as president. If I was as much of a Grovehead as you are... I think I would know this, but I don't. Um, I'm going to guess uh, 1889. You're very close. Am I? Okay, You're very close. 1892. Oh, damn. See, because I because when I was trying to think of what happened in 1892, mm-hmm. um, and then, then Abercrombie and Fitch came up, I was like, yeah, when we were in high school and everyone was wearing Abercrombie and Fitch stuff, it all said established exactly. 1892 right on. Yeah. So yeah, um, the station opened to... To the public mm-hmm. on January 1st, 1892. Its first immigrant was named Annie Moore. She was a 17-year-old girl from Cork, Ireland, who was traveling with her two brothers to meet her parents in the United States. On the first day, nearly 700 immigrants passed over the docks, and over the next year, more than 400,000 immigrants were processed at the station, where processing procedure included a series of medical and mental inspection lines. Through this process, about 1% of potential immigrants were deported. So not Not a huge number. Anyone could change the spelling of their name in New York at any time simply by using that new spelling. Sure, yeah. And records show that immigration officials often actually corrected mistakes in immigrants' names on ship manifests because inspectors often knew about three languages on average, and each worker was usually assigned to process immigrants who spoke the same languages. Mm -hmm. So many immigrant families Americanized their surnames afterward, either, you know, because they followed the process or they wanted to assimilate into American culture. Um, So, anytime you hear like yep they changed our family's name at ellis island that didn't happen it was probably the family decided to change their name later because you didn't really have to do any formal paperwork until about like 1906 or so yeah exactly i mean perfect example of this truth is my last name tagliaferro which is 11 letters long and everyone has such a hard time with and literally means smith in italian (laughs) means iron cutter so if we were going to change our name it would have been way back. You would have done it. Then. Yeah, we would have done it. <laughs> Question three. 
What a confabulation. Founding father Benjamin Franklin never actually proposed that the wild turkey be used as the symbol for the United States over the bald eagle. Franklin did, however, serve on a commission to design the great seal of the United States, for which he proposed an icon of which biblical character from the book of Exodus as an allegory for the colonial era. The only biblical character I can think of from Exodus at the moment is Elijah. Mm. Um, but you, Can you f- think of someone else? Uh <laughs> There's also, um, you got your... It's the big thing that happens in Exodus. Moses? Yes. Okay. Moses. Moses? Okay, great. Yay. What's his symbol? Uh, his staff? So, on July 4th, 1776, Congress appointed the three-member committee composed of Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and John Adams to design the Great Seal of the United States. Franklin's proposal, which clearly wasn't adopted, yeah. featured the motto, Rebellion to Tyrants is Obedience to God, and a scene from the Book of Exodus with Moses, the Israelites, a pillar of fire, and George III was depicted as the Pharaoh, was was his proposal. Um, That's fucking metal like i love that what is that rebellion Rebellion to to tyrants is obedience to god that's metal like i want that now what are we now e pluribus unum or whatever garbage a bunch of eagles and some arrows in this claw whatever that's awesome (laughs) petition for new seal of the u.s government sign our petition yeah sign our petition in in person yeah we'll tell you when to do that um question four for the last time no one was burned at the stake during the salem witch trials in 1692 can you name the enslaved carib woman who was the first to be accused of witchcraft by elizabeth paris and her cousin abigail williams i do not know i don't know a lot about the salem witch trials okay you don't know okay i probably have written between three and five papers on this topic. Seriously? Like starting in high school and then through college and stuff. This is the first I am hearing For of reals? this. For reals? For reals. Okay. I definitely wrote a paper on it in 10th grade. And then I wrote a paper on it in a history class. And then I took a history of witchcraft class and took another, wrote another paper about this. So I maybe this is just me who just feels like. No, please. Everyone should know this. So her name is Tichuba. Oh, okay. Okay. So it was theorized that Tichuba told these girls the tales of voodoo and witchcraft prior to these accusations. She was the first to confess to witchcraft in Salem Village in March 1692 after being beaten by Samuel Paris into confessing. Um, and when questioned later, she added that she knew about occult techniques from her mistress in Barbados who taught her how to ward herself from evil powers and how to reveal witchcraft. Mm. Not only did Tichuba accuse others in her confession, but she talked about animal familiars and riding sticks to different places. Oh, boy. And about about 15 of the accused died in prison, 19 were hanged, and one was pressed to death. In 1992, the Danvers Tercentennial Committee also persuaded the Massachusetts House of Representatives to issue a resolution honoring those who had died. And October 31st, 2001, all were proclaimed innocent. Wow, it took a while. That took a while. Yeah, so this is, this is like... This is a crazy topic, and maybe we can do a podcast episode on it. I feel like there's there's some other ones out there, but I mean, if you but, like our voices, I guess yeah. I can I guess I can rip out my tenth grade paper. I mean, every, <laughs> everything. Well, at least that's like an actual historical thing. My favorite topic that I like to write about in high school and early college was circus freaks. So, <laughs> so. I wrote like history paper after history paper about P.T. Barnum and Sideshow like characters and people. Um, So, I mean, you're in good company, I guess is what I'm saying. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I mean, everything has been covered by somebody. I mean, how many podcasts there are? We are a drop in the ocean. So yeah, if you want to do the 
Salem witch trials just for my personal benefit. Okay. I'm happy to hear All right. it. Yeah. Put it on the list. Great. All right. Question five. This multiple choice question is rated okay for emetophobes. Vomiting was not a regular part of Roman dining customs. Instead, the architectural feature called a vomitorium could actually be found where? A, a public bathhouse. B, a stadium. C, a temple. Or D, a lighthouse. Hmm. Um, I'm leaning toward lighthouse because it's so incongruent, but I think I'm going to go with, Stadium. She was just thinking. The answer is stadium. Yeah. Woo. So the Latin word vomitorium does come from the verb vomo, vomir, meaning to spew forth. Um, in ancient Roman architecture, vomitoria were designed to provide rapid egress for large crowds at mm. amphitheaters and stadia. They were not a special room used for purging food during meals. Question six. Yeah, so medieval Europeans did not actually believe Earth was flat. It looks like scholars have known the Earth is spherical since at least 500 BC. Which fantasy series is set on a flat planet balanced on the backs of four elephants, which in turn stand on the back of a giant turtle? I have no idea. Is it Hitchhiker's Guide to the, Ga- to the Galaxy? No. No? Is it something... You're making a face that makes me think it's related? Is it the Discworld series? It's Discworld. Yes. Awesome. Yeah, by Terry Pratchett. Never read him. There are 41 Discworld novels. Oh, that's why I never that's read That's why him. you haven't wow. read it. Um, Pratchett didn't come up with this idea on his own, though. The world turtle, also referred to as the cosmic turtle or the world-bearing turtle, is a mytheme of a giant turtle or tortoise mm-hmm. supporting or containing the world and occurs in Hindu mythology, Chinese mythology, and the mythologies of the indigenous peoples of the Americas. Yeah, the Haudenosaunee, who are around here. Uh, all, AKA the Iroquois mm-hmm. uh, that is part of their um, uh, like creation yeah. story yeah is yep. the giant turtle the, the back of a giant turtle yeah how about the Haudenosaunee that? man question seven not totally sure why William Seward got such a bad rap it turns out that his big land purchase was generally popular in the United States despite the later nickname Seward's Folly what acquisition did he make from the Russian Empire that's Alaska isn't sure it sure is Alaska Great. That purchase added 586,412 square miles of new territory to the United States for the cost of a mere $7.2 million. That's nothing. So reactions to the purchase in the United States were mostly positive um, because a lot of people believe that possession of Alaska could serve as a base to expand American trade to Asia. Mm -hmm. Alaska was formally transferred to the United States on October 18th, 1867 through a treaty ratified by the U.S. Senate signed by President Andrew Johnson. Um, And it finally became the state of Alaska in 1959 as what number state? Forty-ninth. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> oh my God! You can't spring that on me. Oh my God! Yes, Alaska is the forty-ninth. Forty-ninth state. state. Oh my God! Great. <laughs> you can't do that. You may as well just reach across the table and poke me in the eye. <laughs> so sorry. It's okay. It's all right. Question eight. Despite now being referenced commonly in culture and society at large, it's actually a single debunked work that proposed the idea that Victorian era doctors invented what to cure female hysteria. That's a vibrator. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You are right. Um, So the 2011 film Hysteria, where Hugh Dancy plays a real Victorian doctor called Mortimer Granville, he turns his 1880s invention of a muscular massage device into a sexual awakening for his female patients. This is based on uh, one single book. Um, 
So Granville did invent an electronic device for massages, but it was actually for a massager for male pain. <laughs> Never. <laughs> God so, forbid women don't have pain. Yeah. So apparently like there's, you know, Victorians were, shall we say, they have this... Um, this kind of reputation as being prudish, but there is a lot. There's a lot of like Victorian like oh toys and guides and Victorian smut is out there. Yes. And just because they didn't talk about sex and were obsessed with death doesn't mean that, that they weren't they weren't getting into it, it. Getting it. Yeah. So I mean photography. Like when someone made the first photograph, they're like, wow, that's great. Hey, can I take a picture of a, a dick with that? Is that, can I take a picture of a dick with it though? I love that um, in the good, in the good place when they're in, they're in the, um, the museum, oh, the good yeah. place, the, the, the room of crappy humans. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have the, the first man to take a picture of his genitalia. Yeah. That's, it's very good. That's good. So yes, the vibrator not invented to cure female hysteria. Yeah. Question nine. Just another urban legend, there was no widespread outbreak of panic across the United States in response to Orson Welles' 1938 radio adaptation of H.G. Wells's The War of the Worlds. In the story, aliens from what planet invade Earth? Um, is it Mars? It is Mars. Yes. Um, so that's one of the earliest stories to detail a conflict between mankind and an extraterrestrial race. Uh, the novel is the first person narrative of both an unnamed protagonist in Surrey, England, and of his younger brother in London, as southern England is invaded by Martians. As for the 1938 radio broadcast, only a very small share of the radio audience out there was even possibly listening to it and isolated reports of scattered incidents and increased call volume to emergency services were just played up by newspapers yeah. eager to discredit radio as a competitor for advertising oh, for newspapers that's interesting mm-hmm. oh i didn't know that aspect mm-hmm. of it that's cool and then after that like cbs and orson wells were like yep oh such a <laughs> panic right tune in next time yeah. see what happens exactly so they played it up too And finally, question 10. I hope your feelings haven't been hurt by this quiz. I'll name four popular weapons or torture devices from the Middle Ages, and you tell me if they were real or if they were actually invented during the 19th century. Okay. Iron Maiden. Uh, 19th century. Yeah, so that's that's fake. It's not a a real medieval thing. Um, So if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's a cabinet with impaling spikes lining its interior. So 19th century art collector Matthew Peacock pieced together the Iron Maiden from real historical artifacts. So like he found oh, a bunch of wood mm-hmm. and was like, this could be then, a torture device. And then he was like, found some metal and he was like, that's, let's put this metal in this thing. That's a torture and device. And then there was a philosopher named John Sieben keys who is known for telling tales about um criminals sealed in spiked caskets oh sure yeah so there is no evidence that this ever existed or was used during the middle ages okay the morning star flail so that's like the spiked ball and chain mace uh i'm gonna say real that is fake Ooh, okay um so if yeah it's kind of like if you picture like an iron ball that has it's covered in spikes mm-hmm. um so that was far from a utilitarian weapon and it was instead popularized later by imaginative accounts of war okay Good to know. um the chastity belt i'm gonna say 19th century 19th century yep according to modern myths the chastity belt was used as an anti-temptation device during the crusades i'm um, saying sure. when the knight left for the holy lands on the crusades his lady would wear a chastity belt to preserve her faithfulness to him but research into the history of the chastity belt suggests they were not actually used 
Yeah. <laughs> they were, you know, they became widely available in the form of 19th century anti-masturbation medical devices. Oh, Lord. Um, most surviving artifacts called chastity belts have been removed from museum displays because the authenticity of these belts as medieval devices has long been called into mm-hmm. question. And many contemporary historians accept that these alleged artifacts actually date from the 19th century and are therefore inauthentic. Not from the Middle Ages. Not from the Middle Ages. And finally, thumb screws. Uh, I'm going to go 19th century. No, these are real. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. So thumb screws, um, it's like a it's like a vice sometimes mm-hmm. with protruding studs on the interior surface. Victims' thumbs, fingers, or toes were placed in the vice and slowly crushed. The thumb screw was also applied to crush prisoners' big toes. Oh. It's also referred to as a thumbkin. Oh. In the early 17th century, Italian Baroque painter Artemisia Gentileschi was subjected to thumbscrew torture during a trial where she accused oh Agostino Tassi of raping her. I did that episode. And for more on Artemisia, check Ugh. out episode 26, Artemisia Slaying Holofernes. I should have remembered. That's on me. It's okay. There's yeah. so much torture in the world. You That's know? true. So out of... Out of the Iron Maiden Morning Star Flail chastity belt and thumb screws, the only one from the Middle Ages was thumb screws. Everything else was kind of like made up, made up in the 19th century and given this like backstory. You know, I remember how I almost did an episode on torture devices yeah. because choke pair came up when I was looking for a local <laughs> restaurant. <And> I- <laughs> ah, yes, we're going to head down to choke yeah. pair tonight. <laughs> well, it was my algorithm is just mm. totally messed up. Um, because of this podcast, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. <laughs> but I started in on like medieval torture devices and could not continue yeah. because it was too woozy inducing. But yeah. um, that was very good. Thank you, Julia. Thanks. Uh, so we have a, a little bit of um, listener submitted trivia. Ooh, okay. Okay. So from um, Darwin D. So mm-hmm. referencing um, from the Wu-Tang Clan episode we did. Yes. I said... Please, if I get something wrong or I yeah. miss something, please absolutely let me know. So Darwin wrote in, sent me a very nice email. Um, and he said that the reference to Cuban links, which oh, yeah. I was like, I don't know why that guy's album. I don't know why um, Raekwon's album is named that. So the reference to Cuban links is essentially means a gold chain. So the big mm. heavy ones you see a lot of hip hop artists wear. The authentic ones are made of all gold with no plating and are very durable. So difficult to break. Oh, interesting. So okay. Cuban links is a good thing. Okay. Um, and he also wanted me to point out that Riza stands for ruler Zigzigala and Giz- and sorry and Jizza for genius Zigzigala, both from the five percenter philosophy. Interesting. That's cool. Yes. Thank, Thank you. you, Darwin. Thank you, Darwin. And then, of course, our continuing segment for 2020. I mean, you didn't think that we forgot. No. Germs Corner. So your Hawaiian history for today. Yes. The only Hawaiian gods that come up in trivia are Pele and Maui. Sure. Maui is more or less just as described in the movie Moana. <laughs> also, Moana tells the story of a people who reteach themselves about their history of being master navigators, which echoes the Polynesian voyaging society and the cultural renaissance in Hawaii over the last generation or so. There is so much Polynesian history in Moana. Oh, so, that's good. It's a very good movie. I really liked it. I, I haven't gotten a chance to see it yet. Um, but uh, that's good. I'm glad that it's yes. accurate. Yes. Good. Thanks, and Germ. Thank you, Germ. Uh, thank you to all of you for listening. Thank you to listen to listening to our OK Corral episode. Um, uh, please uh, rate, review, and subscribe at any with any podcast app that you prefer yeah. that you're listening to us on right now. And we've gotten a lot of very nice emails lately. We really appreciate yeah. hearing from you guys. Um, so if you have anything you want to, you know, get in touch with us about, you can email us at misinfopod at gmail.com. Yep. 
and uh, we will be happy to respond to you. Unless you're mean, and then we won't. <laughs> Please don't be they mean. We're very like delicate. Fifty nine minutes of this episode just to like find out how to yell at us. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh man, I cannot wait until <laughs> I get to the end and I can find out where to email them and tell them how mad I am. Um, so uh, thanks so much for listening, guys. Yep, we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.